0: Our final scripture reading for this morning come from Philippians 2, 1 through 11. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. You may be seated. Let's pray together. Holy God, our great God, and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, help us to delight in your commandments, rejoice in your law, and rest in your great grace this morning. Fill us with your spirit of truth, the spirit that illuminates our hearts, the spirit of our Counselor Christ. Lead us in the path of your commandments and the way everlasting, that your church might magnify your name and be united in holiness through Jesus Christ, who is our light and our life. Amen. About a month or two ago, we were at uh, the Harris's house Uh, Craig and Jen. Uh, Craig, I'm going to mention him a couple times in this sermon, so it's important for visitors to know that Craig is our normal pastor here. Um, But I was at their house two or three months ago, and we were having this conversation. It was nice. It was friendly. It was about Emmanuel Classical School, which is the school that our church is starting. The problem was that the conversation quickly turned from a conversation to an argument, mostly due to my bad temper. I like to argue. Uh, I usually find it to be pretty fun. But here's uh, the problem was I was arguing about something really, really dumb. I was arguing that a manual Classical School's uh, uniforms not be navy blue. But here's the thing. I didn't just kind of argue it. I I dug my heels in. I actually got kind of mean. I started yelling. And this was a gathering. So we're at a table uh, in the Harris's house and there's people around us. And I'm positive that at least a few people were becoming a little uncomfortable with how loud and obnoxious our conversation was getting. Well Emmanuel Classical School has navy blue uniforms, it's fine, (laughs) whatever. Uh, And Craig and I are still buddies, we're still friends, we still work together. Not any problem at all. And I'm sure we've all had our fair share of ridiculous arguments like this. Does pineapple belong on pizza? Are you a cat person or a dog person? Which way do you orient the toilet paper roll when you put it on? You know, these are, these are things worthy of argument sometimes. But any of these arguments can be had with no serious ramifications. I love Marvel movies, you don't, that's fine. But what if we land on opposite sides of a few more serious issues? Gun control, global warming, immigration. Unlike pineapple on pizza, we might start to wonder where the threshold for unity is on some of these issues. What about even more volatile topics? What do you think of when I say Trump or Biden or wearing masks or getting the vaccine? What do you think of when I say critical race theory or black lives matter? It may be a surprise to some of us here, but there are people on every side of all of these issues in our church. Our current culture in America would say that we are fundamentally at odds with one another. Unity to the world means thinking the same things about the same topics at the same time. But this can't really be what unity means, at least I hope not. When we consider our church, St. Andrew's Church, are we functionally divided by all the different thoughts and opinions represented among us? If we begin asking, the question, what divides us, will undoubtedly find an infinite number of answers. Starting from this perspective, we often come to the idea that differences mean divisions. But what if instead we ask, what unites us? Let's look to this Philippians passage passage, verses 1 and 2 and see what Paul says. So if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Paul tells us immediately what unites us. He says if we have encouragement in Christ, comfort from love, participation in the spirit, any affection, any sympathy, we should be united. Here's what he's saying, because we're united to Christ, we are Christ's people, experiencing Christ's blessings, we ought to be united. Paul's exhortation is this, because we are united to Christ, we ought to be united to one another. And up to this point, that's a great idea, but it's missing something. The means, the how, how do we achieve this unity? This all of life, unity of of love, and of mind. It's a great idea, but when the rubber meets the road, what do we do? When we actually genuinely disagree about a serious topic, how, how does this uh, unity idea work? And Paul gives us two helpful stops on the roadmap to unity. The first is that the church is unified through humility, and the second is that the church is unified only through the humility of Christ. And let's look at that first idea, the church is unified through humility. Look at verses three and four. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Verses three and four are kind of parallel verses, both following the same pattern that gives a full picture of what humility actually is. According to Paul, This can be summarized by saying less of me, more of you. Let's look at this less of me idea. Paul explicitly states that selfish ambition and conceit must be put away, along with thinking only of our own interests. It's not hard to imagine why Paul mentions these things. We've all experienced how they can destroy relationships. And that's the point of this passage, the church's unity. But often I'm not sure we recognize how or why conceit is actually bad, Sometimes we might even buy into the idea that selfish ambition is good. It's part and parcel with the American dream. I don't have proof of this, but I'm guessing if Crick had a nickel for every time someone came to him and said, hey, pastor, I need help because I'm conceited, he'd have exactly zero cents. We don't think we need counseling for conceit and self-centeredness. I believe this is because the idea of conceit, much like pride, is somewhat Fluid, somewhat of a catch-all idea. But Graham Goldsworthy puts meat on this idea in a way that should help us to understand it. In talking about Adam and Eve taking the forbidden fruit in the garden, he says this. Their disobedience was a giant leap upward that went horribly wrong because it simply could not succeed. Dissatisfied with their humanness, the couple reached for godhood in lusting after a throne that was not theirs, they degraded themselves by, be, by trying to become what they could never be. Our first parents have passed to us the same desires for selfish ambition and conceit. We aren't ever just a little proud, a little selfish. We must recognize the severity of these sins, of selfish ambition and conceit, it's the very act of reaching at godhood, reaching at deity, building a throne for ourselves. And then Paul moves into this idea of more of you. Paul says that we ought to count others more significant than ourselves, looking to the interests of others. So Paul is telling us that we're not just a step down from the thrones that we've built for ourselves, rather we're also called to do what Paul summarized in Romans as outdoing one another and showing honor, or building up one another in love. When it comes down to this more of you aspect, it might be the hardest half of humility, at least in my experience. It's uncomfortable to deconstruct our false throne rooms, sure. But honestly, I can say I'm generally okay not sitting on the throne that I've built for myself, at least in my own perception, if I can look around and see that no one is exalted to a higher station than myself. Right? If, if, if no one seems to be exalted any higher than I am, no problem. But this is humility in fullness, counting someone else more significant in the process of becoming insignificant yourself. This is why these two sides of humility must work in tandem. The significance of others is only built through the lowering of self, and as we learn to rejoice in the significance of others, it helps us to remain dethroned. 1 Corinthians 12 presents us a helpful picture of how this type of humility breeds unity in the body of Christ. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is in Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, and all were made to drink of one spirit. For the body does not consist of one member but of many. that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. The body, the church, works in perfect unity when the individual members are functioning properly, bestowing honor to other parts. As we continue to form our culture in this new St. Andrew's Church, let us constantly examine our hearts. This is where the rubber does meet the road. In all my interactions with each of you, I need to ask myself about my interactions. Am I giving up honor, power, status, and ultimately glory, actively trying to pursue the best for my brothers and sisters, for you? And when we talk about the things over which our culture divides recently with violence, when we talk about those things, maybe it's, not, it may, maybe it's okay not to win the conversation. It's okay to not be right all the time. You know, James, in giving advice to quarreling people, gives us something practical that will really help our interactions. It's this, be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. Yeah, we need to discuss hard topics, but in those moments, if you believe the other person is bought by the same blood that you are, there's a lot of error that is covered. And unity extends beyond St. Andrews. What about other churches in Yakima? We don't just want to be a small unified body here, but, but we are part of a larger group in Yakima. On one hand, we can't overlook the fact that we're distinctly Presbyterian here, right? We're covenantal We baptize infants, and we venerate all the great Johns of church history. I'm just kidding, we don't (laughs) venerate. (laughs) But what does it mean for our relationship with other churches in Yakima? Because we're denominationally different than Restoration Church or Vida Nueva, does that mean that we're divided? We must not allow ourselves to think different means divided. In fact, it's because all our different churches have the ability to worship in the differing ways we all believe is faithful to the Bible. It allows us to stay focused together on the centrality of Paul's unity plea, the life, death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus Christ. Let's not lose sight of what truly and really unites Christ's people. And that's exactly where Paul takes us. Right, so far, we've talked about this great idea of unity, and then this great idea of humility. And both of those things have lacked one still major ingredient, the ability to actually pull it off. Jesus says in John that apart from him we can do nothing, which harkens back to Paul's motivation for unity in the first place, the church's unity with Christ. Let's go to verses 5 through 8. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And this section leads us to Paul's second stop in the pursuit of unity. The church is unified only through Christ's humility. And verse 5 is kind of the linchpin for this entire passage. If verse 5 were not there, we would be hopeless in our pursuit of unity through humility. But because we are Christ's people, He has become our perfect example as well as the one who made unity possible in the first place. As Paul moves on to the next verses 6 through 8, he presents us with the familiar pattern of less of me, more of you. He's already established this pattern, but here, It follows the pattern of less of him, less of Jesus, and more of us, the church. So let's look at the less of him ideas, right? Verse 6, although he was God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Jesus releases his grasp on equality with God. He emptied himself through humility that is a humility unto death on a cross. Jesus Christ, the Yahweh, the Word of God, who was from the beginning, who is the very Word through which and for which all things were created, the Son of God, the life giver, who always has and currently does hold all things together by His power, who gives us actively and intentionally every breath we ever take and everything else we've ever had. This perfectly exalted one stepped down. The creator became creature. The holy, perfect, enthroned God dove headfirst into filth, wickedness, rebellion, sin, and a world that he knew would only rest upon his death. This is Christ releasing his grasp on equality with God and emptying himself. And there's a purpose to this. It's us. This We, the church, we are why Christ came down to die on that cross. That more of us idea is highlighted in these verses as well. Verse 7 says that in his humanity he came as a servant. What does a servant do? He serves, honors, and exalts. Christ did not come into the world that's been rebelling since Adam and Eve ate the fruit just to show off and perform miracles. He came on a mission to rescue his people out of the mire. And there is only one way for this to be achieved. Verse 8 shows the ultimate depth of Christ's willingness to save his people. Christ came to die on a cross for his people. And lest any of us doubt from this passage that his death on a cross is in service to us, let's consider 1 Peter 2, 24. That says it's by his wounds that we are healed. And the we are those of us who by faith trust that this man, Jesus Christ, truly came from heaven as the God-man, to bear our sins on that cross. And when we examine Christ's example against our own tendencies, we see clearly that Paul is highlighting something profound for us to wrestle with. We already discussed that when we give ourselves over to our natural conceit and selfish desires, we are grasping at deity. We are enacting the exact inverse of what Christ did. While we, like the builders of the Tower of Babel, do everything in our power to exalt ourselves upward, grasping at God, Jesus Christ, the true God, releases His grasp on equality with God and comes to us in an act of humility. This helps us to see the destructive and deeply wicked nature of our sinfulness. Why did God have to come down in the first place? Because we are grasping far above our station, hopelessly heaping condemnation on our heads. This juxtaposition that Paul gives us, both reveals the gravity of our conceit and the infinite glory of Christ's condescension. It's beginning to be revealed here that Christ's service to us is to put things in their proper order. And what is this proper order that Christ is restoring? It means that we can release our grasp, our upward grasping. It means we can release our grasp on deity. We can empty ourselves like Christ, and even further, we can humble ourselves unto death for each other. Our selfish ambitions have been crucified with Christ, and we must now follow this example of Christ every day toward one another. Craig preached from Mark 8 just a few weeks ago, and what does it say? That we must take up our cross and follow what Jesus perfectly did for us, humbling ourselves in service to one another. The ultimate end being the crucifixion of our selfish conceit. The idea of less of me, more of you is no less than my death for your life. The mortification of my unruly ego for your flourishing. And to put this squarely in our experiences, let me give you a few examples of what I believe are the biggest threats to unity in St. Andrew's Church. Have you been lied to, cheated, offended, gossiped about, do you feel unseen? or uncared for. I genuinely hope that hasn't been the experience, and I don't know of any specific experiences of people like that. But I have a feeling that time is coming because we live in a broken, sin-stained world. But if you've been sinned against, look to Christ. Take up your cross and offer true forgiveness because Christ has literally already carried those sins upon Himself. As much as you want justice and maybe vengeance for the person who sinned against you, The truth is, if Christ died for them, then God has already poured out his justice on that sin, on the cross of Christ. We know that vengeance is the Lord's. We have the freedom to let go of petty hurts and sins against us. And because of what Christ accomplished in the most tragic event in the history of the earth, we can forgive. Remember that on the cross, Jesus prayed for forgiveness for those who were crucifying him. Now, on the flip side, are you the one who is lying, cheating, offending, gossiping? Are you caring only for yourself and not your brothers and sisters in the faith? Remember Christ. Remember what your sins cost, what He has done to forgive them. Lay them down, take up your cross, and follow Him. Go and confess your sins to those you have sinned against. Asking forgiveness is one of the greatest acts of humility you can perform. You know, it's costly to say, I'm sorry, and conversely, it's also costly to say, I forgive you. We will certainly be divided as a church if in our everyday interactions, we forget this, I'm sorry, I forgive you rhythm. We will certainly be divided if we fail at either of these. So as we, as St. Andrew's Church, as we live lives together, let us remember that we are not united by politics, We are not united by like interests. We are not united by trying to make wrongs right in our own power. We are united by Jesus Christ, and it's his example of humility that we must follow if we're able, if we're to be able to, to be unified truly in love, spirit, and mind. And so Paul has given us not just a throwaway command to unity because we disagree sometimes. Paul has given us the very foundation of the church's one, identity. Because we are united to Christ, we ought to be united to one another. This is only through imitating Christ's humility and His condescension. But as we move to the end of this passage in verses 9 and 10, we see the exalted Christ. We're reminded that the humiliated Christ on the cross is the same Christ to whom every knee on earth will bow. This exaltation of Christ reminds us finally and fully of the proper order of things. As we see Him as properly God, exalted above all, we are reminded that we are properly not. Continuing union with Christ reminds us that He is creator and we are creature. With this reminder, let us press on, enjoy imitating our Lord Christ as we pursue a community of people who practice less of me, more of you. Empowered by our union with Christ, who is the perfect example. And let me end with this picture. From the Philippians passage here that we've read, Paul gives us a beautiful image for the church. Something akin to a mosaic, which starts with broken, ragged, irregular scrap pieces. Then, when expertly crafted together, piece by piece, the parts begin to make a whole, a work of art. In like manner, each of us, individual different, broken, and jagged pieces, who have no, fellowsh- uh, no, no business fellowshipping together according to the world, yet all of us have a place in the collective whole through Christ. We are not divided because we have different edges, shapes, and hues. In fact, it's the differences among us that cause us to be far more beautiful and effective as we function together, serving one another and showing honor to the pieces that might be less honorable. May we strive to be this unified masterpiece as we willfully submit to one another, being conformed into the image of our head and our savior, Jesus Christ. Pray with me. Holy Lord, thank you for your word, for the gathering of your people. Help us to be changed and transformed what we just heard. Teach us to imitate Christ by the power of your Spirit. To the glory of your holy name and through our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, who reigns as King above all. Amen.